Hello and welcome to Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the show. This is the podcast where we talk about matters of faith and culture. Uh, As one recent reviewer of our show put it, this is the podcast where we confuse ourselves and each other and leave in a bundle of confusion. Uh, And so be prepared. Be prepared. Uh, that's what we're going to do, uh, except for this time. We, we, we do spend a lot of time on the show talking about rarefied points of doctrine, you know, obscure technical questions about matters of Christian theology. We also try to spend time talking about just pastoral and practical matters, things that uh, we're dealing with in churches, things that we deal with in the ordinary course of our lives. Um, And that's really what we're going to do today. We've got uh, a wonderful guest on the show, someone whom I've admired for a long time and have followed for a long time, uh, Justin Holcomb. Uh, Justin uh, teaches theology at both Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, He's an Episcopal priest and and a canon in the Diocese of Central Florida. Justin, you have done a lot of different things. You have this series... Uh, you've done a lot on the creeds, is that correct? Yes. Uh have a book called Know the Creeds and Councils, and then another one called Know the Heretics, which are really just uh <laughs> different sides of the same coin. And we we have we have the creeds and councils, many because of heresies, and uh many of the heretics had got their theology fixed or condemned by the council. So telling the telling those stories has been fun. And that's part of a larger series called the No series, apologetics and biblical studies. So, but yes, creeds, councils, and heresies. Yeah. And I I really want to make a joke about how Know Your Heretics isn't like a list of people on Twitter that you really disagree with. Like these are actual (laughs) people who have been known as heretics uh, through through church history. And that's actually the the key because the whole thing is everyone uses the H-bomb pretty quickly. It's like, hey, wait a second. You disagree with me on this secondary point. You're a heretic. And uh, saying, no, let's, let's, let's recover that word and use it the way it's supposed to be used. But yes. uh, Yeah. Well, we're going to have to have you back to talk about uh, some of those rarefied points of doctrine at some point. But um, you you and your wife, Lindsay, you've also done a lot of work on um, sexual abuse, um, sexual assault, those sorts of matters. And that's what we wanted to talk with you about. Obviously, you know, over the last six months, a year, two years, there's been a lot of discussion within evangelical circles about cultures of sexual abuse within the church, um, how we respond to victims of sexual abuse and sexual violence, um, climate questions. uh, And, you know, it's not a, a matter that we have taken up directly before. And so we wanted to think through it out loud with someone who is a real expert. So thanks for joining us today to, to talk about this. I think to, to start us off, Justin, w- w- what sort of things have you observed within the discussion uh, within evangelicalism that you think have been really healthy and constructive? Let's start positively. Right? Yeah. What, yeah. Do, what do you think that, that where has this sort of come from and what should we make of this new uh, uh, issue within, not not new issue, but this 
uh, new burst of attention to it. Yes. Well, well first, let me let me just say uh, thank you for uh, giving your your podcast space to this. Um, you don't have to do it. You guys wanted to talk about this, and I admire that and appreciate that. You know, shining the light on a very dark area. And likewise, I've admired what you all have been doing for a while. And so it's a joy to be here with you guys to talk about this. And I feel really comfortable uh, just talking with guys that I know have a lot in common with. So <clears throat> so thank you for for giving your voice and attention to this. So people will be talking about it. So what have I what have I observed about the discussion? We're starting positively is thankfully people Christians are talking about how does the grace of God, grace and mercy of God, which has been uh, secured and revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So how does the goodness that comes from the work of Christ, the personal work of Christ, how does that apply to the pain, um, damage, and effects of abuse? So in my wife and I, we, we talk about sexual abuse and domestic abuse. That's kind of, we're, we're the Debbie Downers of many uh, conversations. And uh, so we, we get to, basically, how do we connect, the church is trying to figure out how do we connect the dots between the disgrace that uh, survivors or victims of abuse feel and experience. And, and, and it's traumatic. I mean, trauma is the appropriate word for what most people who have experienced sexual abuse, that's what their experience is. How in the world, because does, does the gospel relate to that? And watching pastors, lay leaders, church leaders, I mean, the conversation has gone exponentially more. I mean, my wife and I wrote our book on sexual abuse called Rid of My Disgrace. And I think it was released in 2011, 2010. And uh, it, since the Me Too Church Too thing happened about a year or two ago, uh, the conversation has just uh, multiplied, which I, we're thrilled with. We used to try to just get the conversation going. We had to, we had to make an, an appeal just to say, hey, this is really important. Can we talk about it, please? And it was hard to get people to talk about this. And now, uh, thankfully, the church has responded, is responding. There's more conferences. There's more trainings. There's more articles. Um, and it's evidenced by the fact that we're having this conversation. And, uh, and wanting to find out how do we talk about this very difficult, painful, but important topic. Perhaps one of the first things that comes up in evangelical conversations about this particular issue is the question of forgiveness in ways that often are deeply unhelpful. Um, what do you see as some of the ways in which, first of all, this question can be dealt with in a theologically sensitive and informed manner? And how can that help our theologies of forgiveness more generally? Ooh, I love it. This allows us to be both positive and a little bit negative now. So, uh, <laughs> but great question. And you said that is exactly the case that unfortunately too frequently <clears throat> the the first thing or one of the first things out of a pastor's mouth or a Christian's mouth is when when disclosure is given is, well, you know, you have to forgive, right? Um, there's Matthew 18 and you have to forgive the two things that they go to. And just on a pastoral, not even pastoral, just anyone, just a Christian. Uh, Christians need to know about this, not just the pastors. But the moment of disclosure, when when someone in 
when a victim or survivor, and I use the terms interchangeably, um, not all victims feel like survivors. So forcing to call a victim a survivor makes them feel like, great, I didn't even, I'm not even doing that right. And so it just some victims feel a heap of shame when uh, they're called survivors because they don't feel like they've survived. Anyway, that's just for terminology case. Um, un unfortunately, too many people who disclose get that response. Well, the moment of disclosure is one of the most key moments. So when a victim discloses, the response they get will actually be very influential in their future hope and healing. And so when pastors and Christians hear a disclosure and early on out of their mouth is, well, did you follow Matthew 18? And you know you have to forgive. Like that, let me just tell everyone who's listening, I have never, never had to tell a Christian about forgiveness, if a Christian victim. If anything, I've had to pause the forgiveness conversation because a few things need to happen before you start talking about forgiveness. You actually need to talk about acknowledging the sin and crime that's been committed. You need to know what you're actually forgiving. Forgiveness is not a shallow, sentimental, oh, I forgive you. It's like, no, you need to count the cost. What did, what did happen to you? What were the effects of that? What was the damage that was done by the sin and the crime? Then we can start talking about forgiveness. And the other reason I don't have to talk about forgiveness and bring it up is because Christian victims are in most of the Christian cultures. That's the kind of victim blamey responses. Well, have you forgiven them? And so I've actually had to say, let's pause because the victims are the ones that are bringing to the conversation this heavy expectation of forgiveness. So that's the, that's, that's the important kind of um, kind of Christian response to the, the, the survivor. Now, the theology and the practice of forgiveness is huge because Ephesians 4.32 to 5.2, we're actually commanded to forgive. It's not forgiveness would be helpful for you, so you should think about it. It is. It's, it is personally good for me to forgive because of just how things work. It's but that's not why we forgive. That's that's one benefit of forgiveness. But we're commanded to forgive. Forgive others as God has forgiven you in Christ. You know, the indicative is you have been forgiven in Christ. Because of that declaration, that description of our forgiveness in Christ, the command, the imperative is therefore forgive. There's parables about this. We've committed cosmic treason against God, and he's forgiven us of cosmic treason. No matter how bad the sin against you in crime, we're not minimizing the sin in crime. No matter how bad it is, it's not cosmic treason. So you have been forgiven much. You are now empowered by having experienced forgiveness to actually give to someone else who has committed a sin in crime against you because you know forgiveness of cosmic treason. And so the, the key for talking about forgiveness with survivors is actually talking about their forgiveness with God to actually fuel, motivate, and give them a picture of what it looks like. But what this does is it then uh, kind, of, kind of getting into a theology of forgiveness and, and that I, I, we usually, I usually talk about three different categories. The first one with regard to forgiveness in general, the first one is forgiveness. Uh, an individual, I believe, and there's actually discussions about this, I believe an individual can forgive someone else regardless of that other person apologizing. If someone sins against me, I can forgive that person um, between me and God and whether they even know about it or not. So I can forgive them. If that other person 
apologizes and repents, that's when reckon and I forgive, that's where reconciliation can take place as brothers and sisters in Christ is we are now reconciled. Um, so forgiveness is step one with the, the one who's been harmed. Reconciliation requires two. And then there's a third step, which is restoration. Well, restoration is returning the relationship back to what it was previously. Well, sometimes restoration should generally be a goal when there's a need for forgiveness and reconciliation. But sometimes restoration is actually foolish or unwise. Uh, let me give you an example. If there's a grandfather who has sexually abused his grandchildren, um, the children, if they're at an age where they can actually process forgiveness, and the parents can forgive and even reconcile in Christ if that grandfather is truly repentant and remorseful and, and apologizes. It would be foolish to ever trust him again around children. You would not restore the relationship back to what it once was. Um, you, you would you would have a different you wouldn't re, you might restore it. You might actually interact with him, may or may not, but you would probably not restore that relationship back to what it was without um um, some parameters. And so uh, usually restoration and reconciliation get kind of lumped together and restoration becomes uh, too often kind of the proof like that you've really forgiven. Well, no, have you really, will you let grandpa watch the kids alone? Oh, you won't? Oh, you must not have forgiven him then. You need to go back and for check your heart and forgive. It's like, no, 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 let's not use, let's not misuse restoration as the litmus test for forgiveness and reconciliation having been done. So there really, there's, I, I believe, three categories. So practically, um, I think that is, I've, I've heard that those categories are helpful for people kind of tracking through how does this play out in real life. Looking at many of the situations within the church at the moment, there seems to be problems in thinking about how we instruct people to forgive. But there's also the problem of how can we be forgiven? Um, questions of churches where there has been abuse that's occurred and leadership has not been um, properly um, responsive to the situation or maybe they've even been responsible for abuse. Um, how can Christians learn from a doctrine of forgiveness in those situations where it may be considerably more difficult to know how do we, how can we be forgiven and act in terms of that and actually truly acknowledge what's being done, um, how can our theology help us to deal with the wrong that we have maybe played some part in allowing it happen? Our theology of forgiveness is actually the only way we can uh, respond well. So institutions, so I love this question, uh, institutions have this default mode of defending themselves. Uh, What's been fascinating is watching how other institutions, not the church, during the, the Me Too kind of cultural moment, have been quick to shine a light, acknowledge, and respond very strongly to allegations and um, evidence of abuse. I mean, people are losing jobs, they're stepping down. The church is one of the slowest to actually respond, and it's also not responding as well as other institutions, which is embarrassing. Um but so institutions defend themselves. What I've seen in the church is, and you add on this layer of hyper spiritualization, like, well, we need to defend the church because it's God's mighty institution. What will God do without the church? 
um, we have to defend it even if it's corrupt. Um, and so what ends up happening is the church ends up getting defended. You end up hiding sin. Uh, I've seen a few places use different uh, theologies of church and culture as the way to hide behind. We don't want to bring in outside authorities into the realm of the church. The kingdom does not need to be meddled with with the kingdom of man. Let's keep the kingdom of man people away. Um, and so the, the good way is... <clears throat> If we individually and collectively have a theology of forgiveness and an experience of forgiveness, that actually gives us the freedom to tell the truth about ourselves. It's only when I know that I have been reconciled with God, and I'm thinking of just relationships with my wife and children, when I repent and apologize to them, knowing that they're going to forgive me and have forgiven me, knowing that God has forgiven me, is what allows me to actually tell the truth about what I've done and the effects of it. That's what the church needs to be doing. What ends up happening is that once the church, once a church or denomination is nailed down by overwhelming proof, then you might actually get a, oh, we've really failed. We need to fix this. We're sorry, which is great. I'm glad that they're at least doing that when they're painted into a corner. It would be wonderful, though, if the theology of forgiveness, of the freedom that comes with it, um, and the benefits for oneself and the other person were um, celebrated and enjoyed before they were forced to apologize and repent as an institution. Because there's so much power when, when churches do do it well. I get to work with some local churches, and they I, I've seen pastors and churches navigate difficult waters beautifully and handle uh, cases that have been disclosed it's a beautiful thing to watch an institution humbly acknowledge to the congregation and the leadership say, we, we failed on this. We are so sorry. We have caused pain and we're going to try to make this right. And here's the way we're going to try to make this right. We, we want to be a place where you're safe, where you can trust. And, here we, and, and so that's, uh, that's how the church should be responding. Our doctrine of sin, you would think that the church would be the place that we would have a practical doctrine of sin, that we're not surprised by the darkness in our own hearts, we're not surprised in the darkness in our neighbor's hearts, and we're not surprised by the darkness in collectively in the institution of the church. But for some reason, our the, the church's doctrine of sin ends up being abstract and not a practical reality that we're that we expect. We see that expectation. We see we see in other institutions are like, well. You know, we're not surprised to see a misuse of power and sexual desire and, and how this plays out. We're seeing all these people resigning and being fired. It's almost like the church needs to be more consistent with its doctrine of sin so we're not acting like we're shocked by it. And then knowing how to respond both to the, the perpetrator with consequences, but also the offer of forgiveness and the victims. And what I'm seeing is there's more attention still being given to the perpetrators. You know, hey, have I think let's restore them. How can we restore them? There's so much energy by the institution of the church to restore the fallen leaders when more energy needs to be given to hope and healing for the survivors and victims of sexual abuse. So let me ask about this, Justin, because I think this is, here's, here's a landmine uh, that exists within the conversation that I'm just going to throw myself on. Um, for uh, for the sake of, of trying to work through some 
questions that I have about this broader culture environment. So comparing the church to other institutions and the way in which we're responding to this um, raises a number of questions about presumption and presumption of innocence. Uh, It seems like this is an issue where legally even the presumption of innocence is weakening within our cultural attitudes um, where uh, accusations are treated as um, sort of presumptively true and where there's a moral and increasingly it seems like people think there's a moral obligation to treat accusations as presumptively true right uh, that when accusations are this made in this realm we have a responsibility to quote unquote stand with victims and to even add the qualifier um sort of like alleged victims or you know uh, ostensible victims some way in which we would distinguish and say like there's a a a, a question about the le- accuracy um that you know, to, to raise those questions is to invite claims that you are not being sort of uh, welcoming or hospitable or gracious to those who have suffered considerably. Yes. And I, and I guess I, I wonder, I have a, a lot of very deep reservations about that pressure. I have, I have a, um, from my standpoint, the presumption of innocence within our law, within the law specifically, is um, one of the most like Christian points of American case uh, of American law. Like it's a uh, it's founded not explicitly, but very indirectly and over time, it's founded on a principle that one uh, innocent has died for all and therefore within the institutions of justice we can't use the institutions of justice to create new innocent victims and so the presumption of innocence that's it's just an astonishing high astonishingly high threshold so that we don't by way of uh, uh, pursuing justice for some people sacrifice new innocent blood so-called right so to speak uh, in that process. So I guess I, I, I wonder like how did, I mean, when people respond to folks with the language of forgiveness immediately, that presumes their truthfulness, that presumes the rightness of their complaint. How are we supposed to handle or think about um, just the question of uh, validity, truthfulness, um, and and the presumption of, of of truthfulness with respect to victims, and how do we how do we raise those concerns in ways that are fully respectful of their agency and um, respectful of the serious trauma that they may have experienced and, and dealt with? Yeah, it to me, uh, I, I get that that is a landmine. Uh, I'm really comfortable with this. So if we need to explore it a little bit deeper, I'm. Totally fine. So because it could be a landmine doesn't mean we need to avoid it by any stretch. Uh, not not only in the law are there standards of the presumption of innocence, but the way the Bible talks about this. And you need to have witnesses. And so the Bible has standards. And what's happening culturally makes me nervous also. I'm thrilled that the conversation about sexual abuse has been heightened. What makes me nervous, though, is exactly that, which is... Um, 
that basically the allegation, therefore, is the determination of guilt when you actually have standards of evidence and and all of that. And, and what ends up happening culturally is a kind of a culture of suspicion all over the place. And there was a story about a year or so ago that came out and it was like, hey, this is my Me Too story. And the story, uh, I read the story and I thought, that that's not sexual abuse. That was a really, really bad decision on your part. But um, you, uh, you regret your decision. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm the one who's really sensitive to uh, hearing, you know, a definition of sexual abuse and how broad should it be. And I sent it, I sent the story to my wife and I said, Hey, will you read this for me? I, I just want to make sure like I'm not doing some male privilege thing and misreading it. And she said, no, this is one, this is embarrassing. This is not good for the conversation. This is actually what causes people to actually be suspicious about talking about sexual abuse in institutions culturally. And so, uh, while I appreciate the heightened conversation and awareness, what comes with that is all you have to do now is make an allegation. So um, now some things to keep in mind about this are that, you know, false reports about sexual abuse are very rare. The, one of the problems with reporting and sexual abuse is that there's so much shame involved with being a victim of sexual abuse that many are not reported. So the issue of reporting is, uh, more about the issue of victims not reporting. Now, it is the least, it, it, this is the crime that is least falsely reported as sexual abuse. That's helpful to know. And so I think, I think, and it, I think it's about 2% of, uh, more than 2%, 2.5% .5 of most crimes are falsely reported. Well, sexual abuse is like 1.5% or 2%. So it's less falsely reported than other crimes. Something else to keep in mind is that um, even if you can't prove that the perpetrator is guilty of a crime and sin, you can still address the victim with regard to hope and healing. So it, uh, now justice is very helpful as part of the healing process of knowing, hey, that that's helpful for the victim, knowing justice is being served. I can get off the hamster wheel of revenge. It's not up to me to enact my judgment and justice, but justice is happening. So it kind of it removes them from feeling the kind of burden to make justice happen. Um, but hope and healing can be done whether or not the alleged victim or alleged perpetrator is determined guilty of a sin or a crime. You can still treat and care for the victim. Now, another piece of this is that most, most perpetrators of sexual abuse have more than one victim. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, right. right. Per perpetrators of male children. So male perpetrators against male children have an average of 125 or more victims in their lifetime. Male perpetrators of female children have an average of, I think it's 50 in their lifetime. So perpetrators of sexual abuse, because it's not about sexual desire. It's about power and control. Well, someone who is a power and control freak is not going to have just one episode of exerting power and control over somebody. They're going to have multiple. So if there is, now, is, is it possible that one perpetrator, uh, a perpetrator had only one victim? Of course it is. Is it likely? No. So while you might not be able to prove that one case from that one victim, there's likely, it, it should get, the, so let's do a hypothetical. 
um, let's say that there's an allegation. Um, hey, 10 years ago, this pastor did this. And it's a he said and she said, you know, that pastor did this. No, I didn't. Well, uh, the leadership needs to hear that. They might not be able to enact justice in the way that the victim would want. They can still care for the victim pastorally, figure out what that would look like. But then they have the awareness that there was a allegation about that pastor. Well, does that, are there other allegations? Were there other allegations? They're likely, if that is true, there will likely be other instances of claims and allegations. And if you haven't heard one previously, keep your eye out for more coming in the future. And then tell the, and the pastor, if, if the leadership goes to that church, the pastor and says, pastor, because of this allegation, um, you're going to have an extra set of eyes on you. A good pastor is going to say, absolutely, absolutely. Of course, that makes complete sense. My job, I'm supposed to live above reproach anyway. I invite the extra eyes of attention. It's the creepy pastor who goes, what are you talking about? How dare you? I'm not going to live under those type of circumstances. Well, that's usually an indication of uh, a deeper issue going on. So um, I'll stop there because there's there's other things we can talk about. I think I moved like three or four significant pieces into the conversation. So I want to stop there and see if you guys want to you know, pursue one of those lines or just respond to it. I'd like to talk about the issue of justice. Um when we talk about our questions of justice within the current social context, we're often talking about a situation in which human justice is ultimate justice. But mm -hmm. for a Christian, human justice is penultimate. And I think that gives us different ways of speaking to some of these issues and ways to bring comfort to people in the deliverance of justice, even in situations where human justice can't actually um, resolve a situation. How do you address people with that um, doctrinal truth? Yeah, yeah, I, that's really helpful because I, I love the way you put it too. I think that what we're seeing, much of what we're seeing culturally, um, some of it is justice. Some of it looks like revenge. Um, and Christians would be talking about justice differently because God's justice is the ultimate our justice participates in that justice. Um, and as Roman says in other places, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Well, that reality, that ultimate justice is God's, frees Christians from having to, this isn't our one shot at justice. Um, and when if you think that the that human justice is the only shot at justice, you load up that with so much, and I'm not trying to minimize human justice and the enactment of justice, uh, but when that's the only shot you have, you have to load that up with so much gravitas and significance of getting it right. Now, because we believe that our that our that justice we are dealing with here participates in God's justice and it should be aligned with God's justice as much as possible approximating it. But we also know there is a distinction between God's justice and ours that ours is not God's. Can God use it? Yes. But it should approximate, should be in line with it, but it's not the full enactment of God's justice by any stretch. That frees us up to actually pursue justice, but not loaded up with all of the significance. Um, now, that doesn't cause us to not pursue justice. That actually frees us to pursue justice, and uh, both uh, in, in courts, uh, civil courts, but also in church courts. Um, so I think the—and that's where vengeance is mine for the victim 
gets them, that's the way for them to be off the hamster wheel of revenge. I've seen practically uh, the doctrine of justice and forgiveness. The fruit of that is one anecdote. Uh, a, a friend of mine and my wife's uh, was assaulted on her 21st birthday by at least four, maybe five men um, at a bar. It was a gang group assault. She wasn't even sure how many because of just how they harmed her. And uh, I, I was in the room with her as she, on numerous occasions, would cry while praying for her perpetrators that they would find forgiveness in Christ so they wouldn't experience God's ultimate justice, that she would have brothers who were forgiven of their sin against God and her. And she's weeping as she's crying out to God to work in their hearts so they will repent. So she can, she wanted to see the power of the gospel is so powerful that, that she could be new heavens, new earth, worshiping with her brothers in Christ. Like, God's justice and the power of forgiveness has that as the fruit of it. And it's, it's not just cloaking human revenge with divine justice and kind of divine, a divine stamp of our revenge. It, it actually changes the human impulse for revenge and, uh, and aligns it with God's justice. Justin, so we're going to have to wrap up relatively soonish, but I, you had mentioned the pastor who might be averse to having an extra set of eyes as a kind of warning sign that there might be deeper problems that, uh, going on there. I'm curious about the positive side of that. What are the sort of things that pastors and churches should be thinking about and doing in order to create uh, a climate where these issues are handled well in advance and um, are like where, where they're creating a culture where this just never happens in the first place, right? Like how yeah. can churches be proactive in making sure that uh, nothing like this ever goes on? It's all about, well, a few different things. One is policies and procedures. Many churches don't have them, both for and policies and procedures on how staff and clergy work with each other and the congregation and um, how ministries will unfold programmatically. Um, what are the policies and procedures for the nursery workers? Um, and, and unfortunately, the, the church too often is the last place where policies and procedures are being enacted. Other institutions have them all over the place. And so there's a lag between other institutions and the church. Um, so having policies and procedures, I work, I'm on the board for grace, godly response to abuse in Christian environments. We work with churches who, uh, who to create policies and procedures for them. There's templates that churches can use. So one is policies and procedures. Um, you know, there's no excuse ever for uh, one adult to be alone with one child. You always have to have two non-related, preferably opposite sex. So things like that that are just wisdom. Um, another is the culture of the church, which is you don't want to have a culture of fear, but you also don't want to have a culture of naivete. You want to have a culture of transparency, of clarity, of everyone knows that the people who have power and authority, there are some checks and balances. Uh, 
that's one reason why I like um, uh, conversations about polity of multiple elders or um, or even having, uh, you know, whether you're in an, a, like my setting, an Anglican setting where we have a bishop who have, you know, pastoral oversight over other pastors, some type of connectionality where you have extra eyes. So the culture is going to be significant, especially the way churches can uh, do this with regard to the congregation is the pastor uh, talking about um, either uh, their own experience of being abused, if they have the bravery and courage to do that, which is not an easy thing to do, um, and for, for many of them, and and uh, but also talking about, hey, this is Jesus Christ has um, because of the personal work of Jesus Christ, we have good news. And this good news applies to all of the places where darkness has invaded. It applies to addiction. It applies to your uh, in, internal impulses of darkness. It applies to the abuse that you experienced. Just mentioning it in a sermon of how the grace of God applies to, because of Jesus, applies to the ways we experience pain and darkness, that sets the tone for the uh, culture tone where the congregation thinks, hey, this is something we can actually talk about. He just said that. We can actually, maybe I can talk to my pastor about this. So it sets the culture also. So the, the key, going kind of summarizing, is we need to be able to recognize what abuse is. So what is abuse? How does it happen? So recognizing abuse. Then we need to know how to prevent abuse. Well, that's policies, procedures, and culture. And then we need to know how to respond to abuse. If disclosure happens, what are the policies? How do we actually address this? Um, as a response, a, a proper godly response to an allegation of deep abuse and darkness. So those are those are the the main areas that we can that that churches can do this is the preventative, and that's the reason my wife and I one of the reasons our, my wife and I did a kids book called God Made All of Me, um, subtitled How to Help Children Protect Their Bodies, is on the preventative side. How how can families and churches help children? Pro, um, protect their bodies from perpetrators is if you can prevent it from happening or set guardrails in there so it's more difficult to um, to be a perpetrator. Uh, that's that's one of the keys. And and churches are too often are the easiest places for perpetrators. Um, there there was an interview with a uh, perpetrator who abused in churches because churches were so easy and porous with no policies. They didn't do background checks. They Too many of them don't have any policies on adults, and they're looking for warm bodies who will actually volunteer. And they, the, the perpetrator said Christians are the easiest to dupe. Um, you would think that they would actually have a be more suspicious because they talk about sin, but they actually seem to believe they have an optimistic view of uh, humans that were really just basically good. And uh, it's, it's easy to, to, to wreak havoc in uh, Christian environments for numerous reasons. One final question. Um, when you're talking about these issues, I think perhaps it is one of the deepest issues in which someone feels that their body has been violated. Often when we're talking about sin, it's something that isn't so bodily, but these are visceral, deep bodily wounds. How do we address the gospel to people's bodies? I mean, I read um, Paul and he talks about the body is the limbs and organs of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body bought with a price. 
how as evangelicals can we address that to people in a way that really hits them and makes that message sink in yeah, look, i'm going to take a pass at it and if i if if i uh, don't hit the bullseye or you think i can get closer just just fire back and i'll try um i want to talk about just the the well first trauma done to the body uh, the way trauma works trauma memory is different from typical memory typical memory is hey i can remember uh, a past thing. And it's, I actually see it like it's a movie. Like, hey, I remember when that happened, you kind of relive the scene from a distance. Like, oh yeah, I remember that, that, that. Um, I remember the first time I caught a tarpon. And, and that memory, I can still see that memory. A tarpon's a big, huge, four or five foot sport fish here in Florida. Um, I remember that. Well, trauma memory is different. Trauma memory is a reliving from your vantage point as if you're in that traumatic experience all over again. And so sexual abuse types of memories frequently are traumatic memories. Victims of sexual abuse actually experience uh, PTSD. Um, this is the second, it's the second uh, population after war vets to experience PTSD symptoms. So trauma and memory is actually body memory. So the question about the importance of body with regard to this is huge because we're not dualists. We believe in duality. The body and soul belong together. And sins against the body are going to have effects on the soul. And the darkness the soul experience is going to be connected to the body. So it needs to be an embodied type of thing. One thing is that touch has been, uh, the, the use of physical touch has was a weapon that was used against that person. And so being aware of the significance of touch. Uh, so in certain churches, uh, the passing of the peace is actually a very significant moment. You are forgiven. Peace be among you. Peace also with you. That the passing of the peace can be simple touch of handshakes, hugs, but also being aware of the sensitivity of physical touch. Um, so just a practical thing with regard to, to, to body and touch is just being aware of that. But the, what ends up happening is that, that because of because of the personal work of Jesus, it's not just the forgiveness of sins. Too many Christians have a, a minimalistic forgiveness of sins is, is bullseye. Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's a refrain. But he didn't die only for the forgiveness of our sins. He also, uh, the, the personal work of Christ was he triumphed in his resurrection over evil. Um, he lived a perfect life, the active obedience of Christ. So we're not just forgiven of our sins, but we are declared righteous. And some of the Bible words that are used for those in Christ are mind-blowing. We're pure, perfect, holy, and righteous. Like the, the adjectives that the New Testament uses for those in Christ are staggeringly beautiful. And that's because of the act of righteousness of Christ. And because of that, we get to tell victims, you feel dirty. And this is where the identity, distorted identity is so key because it brings together your question about the body of Christ, physicality, body, memory, soul. People, because of what happened to their bodies and their souls, they feel filthy, dirty, like damaged goods. And so when you can respond, when Christians can respond and say, you're in Christ, the way God, what God calls you is the opposite of that. Because you are in Christ, you are seen as you're declared pure, perfect, righteous, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. Well, that's actually addressing both how they feel internally, 
but also a lot of the language of identity is I feel dirty, filthy, and damaged goods. Those actually are that that's that's soul and body language right there. That's why that's why victims of abuse go take a shower because they feel physically filthy and defiled. And the language of declaration of righteousness is not just not only a legal declaration. It's uh, it is a legal declaration, but the legal declaration isn't an abstract. It actually has effects for the filth defilement that they actually feel spiritually, but also feel physically. So does that get toward your question? Definitely. Okay, great. Yeah, I think that's a terrific note to end on. I mean, that's just like preaching straight gospel for us. Uh, and I think that's, that's um, just what we need. Um, well, can I, can I jump in Justin, for 10 seconds on this real quick? Yeah. Okay. Cause, yeah. cause what, what, especially like you guys, what you're doing is, uh, but just the people who would listen, uh, we know the bullseye is that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He also rose again. So we would have hope in the middle of darkness that he punches holes in the darkness. He lived a perfect life so we can be declared pure, perfect, and holy as if, we, we're called what Jesus actually was. Um, and then, you know, he also suffered in his incarnation. So there's some solidarity, but he also ascended. And since he's ascended to the right hand of the father, he is our mediator. He is our advocate and he is our intercessor. And so the full work of Christ, as Calvin said, he began redemption with the incarnation. I mean, the, I mean, I'm summarizing, but it's not just his death on the cross. It's the entire work of Christ. He accomplished God's redemption on our behalf. And so looking at our systematic theologies and biblical theologies of the work of Christ, I mean, I'm thinking of Ritterboss's chapter two and Ritterboss's doc, uh, Paul, a structure of his thought. He goes through all the different works of Christ. If we can think application of what what are all the things Christ has done and how do those apply to victims of sin and suffering and, and start making connection points. There's a lot of beautiful possibilities of pastoral application of the gospel. So when you said that's just preaching straight gospel, yes, that's the goal. And we have we have a wealth of theological you know, your Christology, our Christology is the foundation for the good news we have to connect the dots of God's goodness and grace and mercy to the disgrace that victims feel. And that, that point you ended on, that's that's the heartbeat for what the church needs to be continue saying to victims. Hmm. Well, I'm very glad that you are out there doing this and working with people. It's 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 a great and it's a difficult work. Um, thanks for informing us and talking with us about some of the theology and the practice behind this. And um, yeah, really appreciate your work. Uh, just very briefly, where should folks go to get more resources on this? Uh, for anything that my wife and I have done, uh, we have everything at justinholcomb.com. So just justin, H-O-L-C-O-M-B.com. And we have articles, blog posts about sexual abuse, domestic abuse. Uh, under the book section, we actually just have a bunch of free chapters from our various books, one on sexual abuse is Rid of My Disgrace. The one on domestic abuse is Is It My Fault? And we have just, I think we have about eight free PDFs of just chapters on from those books. Wanted to make those available. So justinholcomb.com is the easiest place to go. And then you can also go to netgrace.org, net, 
grace.org, which is the website for uh, Grace, the organization I mentioned, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. Excellent. Well, thanks uh, very much for being here. Please keep up the good work. Uh, Thanks as well to all of you who have listened to this episode. We're grateful for your time and attention. We're especially grateful for those who have supported us financially, our Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to join their crew, Uh, do so. You can find the link in the show notes at Mere Orthodoxy. Uh, We will be back next week, maybe the week after, with more discussions about faith, culture, and how we live as Christians in this world. Until next time, this has been Mere Fidelity. Mere Fidelity.